0: Barry, thank you so much for joining me today, man. You, I told you before we started recording, but I'll tell you again, my brother, you have been on a very short list of personalities I've wanted to talk to for a very long time. So thank you for your time today, sir.
1: Um, It's my pleasure. It's good to be out of the cave. I've been in a cave for about a decade. <laughs> yeah. So it's nice. I appreciate the invitation. So,
0: so for our listeners who might not uh, know about your story, would you mind filling us in on your backstory a little
1: bit and, and your history? Sure. First, the story of my life will be airing soon on Netflix in a four-part docu series. Um, so there's a lot to the to my life, and I didn't. I really didn't intentionally set out to be this person. I just sort of saw opportunities and went with it. And yeah, so I was one of the U.S.'s top drug agents. And I didn't say that. My bosses said that in in an interview with the AP. I arrested more people per month than the entire task force agents put together, and we had 30 agents. I was doing 30 to 40 cases per month. Now, I'm not saying that to brag because obviously... What I was doing was immoral. It was wrong. Um, but that was before the internet. You know, I believed that, I believed what the churches told me and my parents and my peers and uh, the schools. They all to- taught me drugs are bad. And I didn't have anything to compare that to. So I really thought I was doing something for humanity out there arresting all these nonviolent drug offenders. Well, I, I realized that I wasn't doing the right thing when the internet came out. So I just sort of flipped and I made a series of DVDs called never get busted volume one and volume two, totally just expecting to sell those in high times magazine to the stoners who kept getting arrested in the DVDs. I explained how I was trained to bust the drug users. And I offered a way to counter that to keep from getting busted. It went viral I woke up with helicopters flying over my house, 40, 400 emails, of which a dozen of them were mainstream media news wanting to interview me. So I jumped in some interviews there with Fox and MSNBC and CNN, and um, I enjoyed the the attention. I thought this is you know this is bringing a voice to the drug war. So to kind of keep uh, my audience. Excited, I started busting cops (laughs) with a little internet reality show called Cop Busters. Um, I actually got two people freed from federal prison from my work, but I was naive. I I really believed if I didn't break the law, I would be okay. Um, I was running for Texas Attorney General, and I was using the success of Cop Busters, to get get the money and the votes I would need to win and I was going to stop the drug war in Texas. And at I'm so embarrassed now mm-hmm. that I would even think that would be possible. I had no idea that the the matrix guards those positions. They're not going to let me be attorney general. Come on, Barry, you're stupid. And you're not going to be able to run around the, the US busting cops and embarrassing them without some type of retaliation even if even if you are Abiding by all the laws. So yeah, I brought they, I got arrested nine times. My entire life, I've been arrested nine times. All misdemeanors. Um, they raided me, took my kids. You can see that interview on uh, Judge Napolitano on Fox. We talked about it. He interviewed me shortly after they took my kids. And and I'll tell you, Jason, it was so bad. The retaliation was so bad. Every time I walked out of my front door, I was being arrested and guns pointed at me. Mm -hmm. And eventually I couldn't take any more of it. So I waited till I pled all my cases out. I pled everything not guilty, except I pled guilty to something, I think, not having a PI license, a private investigator's license, even though I didn't need one because I'm a journalist. But I pled guilty to that and a $700 fine, no jail time. You know, I didn't pay the $700 fine. I left the U.S. with my family. We took a cruise ship to Aruba. And instead of getting back on the cruise ship, I had a speedboat waiting in Aruba to take me and my family to Venezuela. Venezuela didn't have any jurisdiction. I wasn't running from a crime, but I was running with my son, with my autistic son. I promised his mother that I would never let them get split up again, like the government split us up. I said, that never happened again. Well, I knew they couldn't touch us in Venezuela. I knew the mom and the kid could stay together. It's it's heart-wrenching watching this autistic son screaming and crying, wanting the mother and the government not listening to it. It was torturous. Like, like my wife could see him once a week. And that was bittersweet because they got to see each other, but them being torn apart, it 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 it, it got so bad that wife is dead now i contribute her death to the trauma losing her kids so i fled to venezuela with my family and i i boxed it out there for about eight months one of the most dangerous places on earth i had a fistfight my way through that country Mm -hmm. and i thought this is this is too dangerous for my family so we snuck through 13 venezuelan checkpoints we had some locals help us do it, and we arrived at the Brazilian border where they gave me political asylum. Me and my family, we got political asylum. Um, I stayed there about a year. We talked uh, the courts and the uh, and my autistic son's natural father uh, into signing for his passport. Once we knew that happened, we couldn't be arrested for parental kidnapping anymore. We left Brazil and went to Mexico, where I lived for six years while in Mexico, I went through a divorce. she was murdered, I became a drug addict and my all my family turned on me, and I met my wife that I have now heard I just enjoyed our eight year anniversary wow. <laughs> she was philip she was Filipino. So I wanted to come check out her environment. I loved the Philippines so much that I stayed. So I've been here in the Philippines for five years. Now, through that entire process that I just hurriedly laid out, I never quit freeing drug prisoners through my expert witness program. Um, throughout the years, people know if they catch a drug case, I'm the one who will manipulate the courts. I'll make their lawyer work right. And I get a lot of cases dismissed. So my heart and my passion and my, my will to continue fighting in this drug war never quit. I just had to do it from afar, bro. I had to leave, flee. And I've been, so I've been gone for a total of 15 years. I haven't been back.
0: Yeah, the, yeah. the Philippines.
1: This this documentary is going to show this Netflix documentary. It's Tiger King producers who are doing this. Yeah, we well, to- I I wanted to jump into that with you because I mean, there's so many
0: points throughout your life story that I want to hit. So let's go back to the beginning because you you referenced what you were doing as being immoral. Can you expand on that a little bit? Like what what as a as a narcotics officer, what about what you were doing? Did you feel was was you know ethically incorrect or, or immoral?
1: yeah well i'm i'm i guess libertarian by heart i don't claim any political group i don't do well in groups <laughs> but you know i i believe that something shouldn't be a crime unless there's a victim like robbery theft burglary and uh the drug crime the state's the victim <laughs> it's like the state of texas versus whoever i arrested and i'm not quite sure how the state of texas became a victim when he lit up a joint and smoked it, so to to go as as drastic as raiding somebody's house, handcuffing them, taking them to a cage and putting them through all of that for a nonviolent drug crime to me that's immoral.
0: Mm, yeah, it's not no. right.
1: We we can do better. Yeah, and I and I feel like um
0: I feel like Reagan's drug war policy you know disproportionately targeted poor people and. And as a result of that, disproportionately targeted young black men. And I think that, 100%. I, yeah. And so, as a as a narcotics officer in Texas, I mean, you were probably mainly arresting people for marijuana, correct?
1: Marijuana and a lot of crack cocaine. Yeah, and this was the early '90s, so methamphetamine was was out there too. Not the crystal, the ice had just hit. In fact, I made the first ice arrest in West Texas. I got it from a truck driver coming through from California. But yeah, mostly marijuana, a lot of crack cocaine and some methamphetamine, very little opiates like we have now, very, very little bit of heroin I would ever catch.
0: Yeah. And I mean, you know, you being in Texas, it says a lot, you being the, you know, the top narcotics officer in the state where, you know, you have thousands of tons of drugs passing through every single you know month or year right i mean like we're talking you know coming through the southern border in texas i mean that's just that's just drug city right i mean of the,
1: course yeah well uh, you know almost all of our drugs come from mexico and texas borders mexico so yeah it's and they're still pouring in <laughs> the drug war has not
0: worked no no and that's and that's it is it, you know I think now and and I will credit you with this with a lot, because, you know, like I I told you before we started recording, you popped up on my radar years ago. I'm from Vancouver, British Columbia in Canada. That's the city I was born and raised in Uh, the group of guys that I grew up around. We all kind of operated within some gray areas, certain periods in our lives. And so when your DVD never get busted. Uh, made its way into Vancouver everybody was burning it trading it you know people couldn't believe it's this, this narcotics officer he's telling everybody how to how to how to not get busted but essentially what you were doing was teaching people how to how to beat the drug war right that's and right. that's yeah and and that's what it was it's you know I, I I for the longest time I mean I'm still kind of divided because I do feel like in some ways that that drugs the drug trade and and the black market leads to violent offenses but in terms of users um you know i feel like you know in, in, we're in a tricky situation here in canada right like in 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 british columbia they've basically decriminalized everything and they've started a safe supply program which basically is you know a program where uh, addicts are handed you know cleaned clean drugs, drugs that don't that aren't laced with fentanyl, because the fentanyl crisis in Vancouver is just I mean, it's an epidemic, right? I mean, it's, it's exploding. And uh, but I, but I do feel like like in a way that that treatment is 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 the better option, right? Like when when it comes to decriminalization, just handing people free drugs and sending them on their way, it tends to create a lot more chaos. Whereas if you have a system where 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 treatment is readily available for people, and you 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 invest your money there instead of into throwing people in prison i feel like that's that's the more beneficial
1: way the, the 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 way to actually clean things up i agree and i'll tell you since covid and since the um opiate crisis and since i lived in mexico dude i've had to rethink i've had to rethink how i feel about what we should do in place of what we're doing now. You know, I, I was always old school saying prohibition never works. Prohibition does not work until I went to Mexico. Mm-hmm. Prohibition does work. Listen to me. Prohibition works. Mm-hmm. I lived in Puerto Vallarta. Mexico is the source city for all the opiates that are being, that are poisoning the Americans. That's coming from Mexico, but you can't buy those same opiates in Puerto Vallarta. I know because I, you know, I, I've been through so much trauma and I partied through it. I woke up one day and I was an addict. You know, I, I had been overusing too much. So I had to go buy drugs and I tried to buy opiates and never really liked them. I got addicted to the, ugh, the methamphetamine, but you can't buy heroin in places in Mexico. You can't buy fentanyl in places in Mexico, although that's where it's coming from. Why can't you buy it? The cartels prohibit it. It's the death penalty. If you get caught selling that shit in their jurisdiction, they'll knock your teeth out first time. And then the second time, they will kill you. And I actually, my wife and I, a month before I left Mexico, we saw five people shot. Bing, bing, bing. One at a time. One of the most horrible things I've ever seen in my life. But they wouldn't quit selling drugs. Only Mm. the cartel can sell drugs. I also know Singapore doesn't have any overdoses because they have total prohibition. It's death penalty if you if you have the drugs. Now, I'm not saying I'm for the death penalty. I'm saying prohibition does work. There's no sick people in Puerto Vallarta, Mexico. All those homeless people and sick people and overdoses, it's not there like it is in the U.S. I also used to believe the old school route that the government can't stop the flow of drugs, no matter how hard you try. Remember, I used to use the example, prohibition doesn't work because inside the prisons, which are some of the most heavily guarded institutions in the world, you can still get drugs. So if it can get through into the prison system, then it can certainly get across across the uh, the border, no matter how hard you try to stop it. But I, I don't believe that now. I saw the Mexican cartels effectively prohibit and keep a certain drug out of their cities. Tells me the U.S. government can do it too. I'm certain the U.S. government is allowing the fentanyl crisis as part of a depopulation program. The government can stop the fentanyl. So, so what am I saying it is... Is does prohibition work? Yes. Does that mean we need to pro prohibit it? No, because I think I think it needs to be heavily regulated, kind of like what you were saying, yeah. Jason, where there's some kind of treatment. I never in my life would have thought humans would continue taking a drug that killed them. In fact, I used to say this all the time. I used to I used to say, you know, um, what what was I talking about, Jason? Fentanyl. Remind me. The
0: the uh, decriminalization prohibition of, uh, of yeah drugs. yeah yeah
1: yeah. I used to say I, I used to say it's not that drugs are bad; it's that they're so good. And if you if you start trying to sell a drug that says, "Hey, take this," one out of five people die from it you wouldn't be able to sell that drug. That's what I said. Mm-hmm. But that's not true. I've seen through the opiate crisis, these motherfuckers know that, that they can die from it and they're still taking it. Yeah, They're still taking it, which tells me they need some help. They need some intervention. And that intervention, in my opinion, would be to stop it at the border. Stop it from coming in, mm-hmm. just like the Mexicans do, just like Singapore does. Don't allow it to poison your culture and the drugs you do allow, say methamphetamine, cocaine, marijuana. Besides marijuana, but these other drugs regulate it. Give mm-hmm. them clean drugs, and if they take that drug and start becoming an addict, take their ass to to rehab. Be really strict about it, like the Mexicans. The Mexicans are like, guess what, Barry? You can do all the drugs you want in our city as long as you don't do it in public, and as long as you don't sell it, and as long as you're not violent. Mm-hmm. Those were the rules. If somebody came into that city doing drugs and started punching people or robbing people, they got dealt with right then on the street. Yeah. That's why it was so peaceful. That's why it's so peaceful in Mexico. I loved it there. So oddly, the cartels can teach the American government something about the drug war. <laughs> that sounds that sounds crazy, doesn't, doesn't it?
0: Yeah, but it's well, not. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, when people talk about decriminalization, they often you know, reference Holland or or Portugal, but what they often miss is that both countries have poured a considerable amount of money into treatment. And that's 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 the missing key, right? I mean in BC, they've pretty much decriminalized everything, but they've also v- v- vastly restricted funding for treatment and so what you have is a night of the living dead situation, right? I mean, I mean, a drug
1: free for all.
0: Yeah. The, the lower East side of Vancouver is, I mean, it's,
1: it's, it's the worst thing you will ever see in your life. See, I used to think that wouldn't happen, that if you gave humans the choice and you backed out of enforcement, that that wouldn't happen, but it happened. Did it surprise you too? Or am I the only one that's I mean, it did. It did to a degree. I like, you know, I, growing up
0: in my 20s, I was a hardcore liberal, right? I was very progressive. So I was always one of these people where I thought decriminalize everything, just just let it go and it'll work itself out. But now that I'm a bit older and and I'm seeing the the result of the of some of these drug policies, I definitely see. I mean, I think decriminalization is the way it doesn't make sense to throw people in prison for for small time right. drug offenses right i mean especially users right, right? you're not right. you're not you're not solving a problem and essentially all they really are is they're just bodies that that generate uh profit for the private prison industrial complex right so it's right. that's 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 only that's only you know purpose they really serve but if if you want to decriminalize drugs you have to make treatment more available and that's why portugal and and the Netherlands have been so successful with with their drug decriminalization programs because treatment is readily available. And I can tell you, I I have friends who who were addicts. Some are recovering now, and it it took them years to get into to drug treatment facilities. Right and. And, and, and that's the thing is it's, it's the availability of treatment. And I always say this addicts don't want to be addicts. And you know, this because you were an addict, you don't mm-hmm. want to be an addict. It's not like you wake up in the morning and you look forward to doing whatever you have to do to get, to get your fix, right? Like it's, it's yeah. addicts don't want to live that life. If you give them an, an opportunity, if you give them an out, most addicts will take it. They'll at least try. It doesn't mean it'll yeah. be successful, but they'll, they'll give it their best effort. Right. And, yeah. you know, for a lot of addicts, it takes three or four times to pass through treatment for it to finally stick. Some it takes 10, some it's 20, right? But as long as those facilities and those, those programs are available, then, then you're actively working toward cleaning up the problem. But I, I think that's the issue. The issue isn't, isn't whether or not we should make drugs, whether or not we should decriminalize, uh, uh, you know, various substances. It's, it's what's available to people who who are addicted and and not yeah. get off them.
1: So you're right. The blue cities, the Democrat cities in the U.S., when they backed up law enforcement, backed out law enforcement and decriminalized under a gram of these hard drugs, the in, according to what you're saying, the ingredient they missed is they didn't give treatment.
0: Yeah, that's it.
1: That's exactly and, it. And it's doing it's it's horrible. I know what you're talking about i I watch it on youtube i haven't been there personally but it's are are americans and canadians just blind letting that shit happen well, well i the, don't i don't
0: yeah the problem is i think it, it has to do with with liberalism uh, out of control liberalism right we our brand of liberalism has swung so far to the left that it's that it's radicalized now i mean we're we're in the marxist territory now yes. right and and that's I mean, we've been there for a while now, and we're just starting to see the, the the fruits of that ideology, and that's why, you know, if you've noticed, most liberal Western countries are swinging back toward the right because we're realizing how badly we fucked up.
1: Oh you man, I, I I am I am deeply saddened by what they did to Canada. I used to I used to point to Canada and say, "Look, Canada did it, so we can do it." I mean, you guys were a model country, some of the nicest white population in the world not quite as nice as asians but almost (laughs) and it just a beautiful country and during covid when i saw your president you know using their horses to run over protesters and taking their bank accounts and him getting on there screaming that fascist stuff but in Mm this in the same breath he's claiming he's protecting democracy i like to lost my damn mind and canadian hat canada hasn't been the same since no. And now, from the outside looking in, I'm seeing a population of people who were abused for their first time, and they're shocked by it. You all got, we all got abused, but the poor Canadians, they didn't have to do that to y'all. That's, I'll never yeah. forgive them for that.
0: Well, it was, it was a lot of that. I mean, you know, it was three years of draconian, authoritarian, you know, uh, mandates and 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 edicts coming down from our federal government our far left federal government you know that's Mm -hmm. you know canada i wrote an essay about this recently um but canada well you read the essay canada serves as an example to the rest of the world of what what happens in the modern day when you elect a a far left government and that's beautiful
1: essay too by the way let me just congratulate you now i have a uh bachelor's in uh speech and english secondary education so i i love good writing and when i saw your essay pop up i started reading i'm like who is this motherfucker he is (laughs) smart (laughs) oh wow
0: thanks man yeah really
1: good job man we need more of that we need more of that it made sense it was smart but it, you didn't write it like you were trying to sound smart, you know those kind of writers. It was yeah. just beautiful, man. It was beautiful.
0: Well, well thank you, sir. I, uh, yeah, well, that's that's basically it. I mean, I kind of, I, 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 hope I at least captured most of what we experienced and are currently experiencing in in Canada. I mean, I've I left British Columbia. I'm in Alberta now, which Alberta is 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 referred to as Canada's Texas. And I've been to Texas. I could tell you we are exactly the same. I mean, if you (laughs) took if you took Texans and you put them in Alberta, you wouldn't even notice they're here. Um, I've never
1: been more proud to live that. I came from Texas. I used to be a little embarrassed because we were so hardcore law and order. But now that I've gotten older and I see how things have turned out, I'm proud to be from Texas I tell you what, being raised in Texas prepared me for the rest of the world out here. I thought Venezuela was going to be rough. I thought the Amazon jungles of Brazil was going to be rough. I thought right. Mexico around the cartels was going to be rough. No fucking way. It was a cakewalk compared <laughs> to the trailer parks of Texas that I grew up in. If you, can, <laughs> if you can make it through Texas where I'm from, you can compete anywhere in the world. Anywhere well, in the world.
0: Oh, yeah. I, I've been to Texas. It's the Texas is uh, interesting because... Everybody has everybody has a, a fuck you attitude with this with the sweetest
1: heart you'll ever you'll ever yeah, know. Right. So exactly. they're the sweetest people. But we the have moment- the we have the peace, this dichotomy going on. Let me see. That's right. That's right. Like, fuck you. But peace. Or yeah, peace, exactly. But
0: <laughs> yeah, I love you till you fuck with me. Then I'll shoot you. that's, that's Yeah. Kinda, yeah. So <laughs> so I want to go back to your story, babe, because um, I, I want to ask you, like, what was the pivotal moment like that that kind of changed your perspective on on the
1: drug war? it was my third wife. Yeah. My third wife, I was married 15 years. Then I was married two years. That was kind of a long, bad date. <laughs> and then my third wife, she's the one who's deceased now. My best friend murdered her. Her and I were married 11 years. She was 10 years younger than me when I met her. And she she's got me smoking weed. I was drinking every day, drinking vodka every day. And when I would smoke the weed, the vodka didn't taste good anymore. A lot yeah. of people report that like you mm-hmm. can't smoke weed and drink hard liquor. I couldn't. And I laughed and laughed and laughed. This is in my mid thirties. See, I didn't start really doing drugs till later on in my adult life after I had already been successful. But my, yeah, my third wife, oddly led me away from God. She's the one who, cause I used to be a preacher She taught me that there wasn't a God, and she led me away from this prohibitionist mindset that drugs are are bad. Now, weirdly, though, weirdly, the last filming session I had with Netflix in a, a studio in Australia, it's about four weeks ago. They've got all the filming, no, four months ago. They threw a book down in front of me said, we have your former wife's diary here. I'm like, yeah, I, I'm the one who gave that to my kids. And I never would read it because it seemed disingenuous. It seemed snoopy. You know, I'm not the kind of guy who goes into people's phones and stuff like that. So I gave it to my daughters and they opened it. And every page, she's praying to God. I couldn't believe it. I'm like, she's praying. Thank you, God. Help me, God. I'm like, that doesn't seem like the wife I was married to, because she's the one who convinced me there was no God. Mm -hmm. I've since re-explored all of that, and I'm on my way back in my spiritual life, but she's the one who helped change my mind that it was rotten arresting all those people. Not a heroic thing, but a rotten thing. So I took her arguments along with using drugs myself and I loved them. I'm not glorifying drug use, but I loved them. And then the internet was coming on strong and I started Googling prohibition and stuff like that. I'm like, how the fuck did I miss? I didn't even know what the word prohibition meant. Literally. You tell me prohibition. I didn't know what it meant. Um, So yeah, it, when faced with the right information, if you're right, I'll change. And I did, I flipped. That's amazing because, you know, most people,
0: especially you being as good as you were at what you did, most people would kind of just shut that out, you know, and just pretend that it wasn't there because it's not in their best interest. I mean, for you, it, it was not in your best interest to quit what you were doing. I mean, you were arguably the top narcotics officer in the country at the time. So, so what, like, I mean, I mean, was it just, just pure, just courage? I I, like, I mean, what drove you to decide, Hey, you know what? I'm going to switch sides. I'm going to start teaching people how that they, how they can beat this system.
1: Well, I think good education, my mom, even in, in the universities as I was on the debate team in universities, they taught me, look, don't argue to win an argument, argue to hopefully change your own mind. In other words, challenge the other narrative And if it convinces you to change your mind of the facts and evidence there, if you don't change your mind and change your stance, you're you're a coward. It's cowardly to hold on to a false belief. We've all had false beliefs, but you're right. A lot of people, for embarrassment or because they've propped up that narrative for so long, even though they know they're wrong, they'll still defend it. And I, I don't have respect for people who do that. You know, I'll tell you what we're missing, Jason. Here's an ingredient we're missing. And they quit teaching it to us on purpose. And it's courage and bravery. We, we're we taught, if you don't feel it, don't do it. Like, no, that's too much stress. Instead of teaching, especially young men, look, I know you don't feel like going back to school and fighting that bully, but push past what you feel use courage and bravery, and walk in their first period and go sock him in the damn face. Mm-hmm. That's that's a really hard thing to do, but it's a necessary thing. And, and a lot of people would argue with me about, well, that's violent. Mm, well, you see what's happening with our society of pacifists. It's more violent than it's ever been. So pacifism breeds violence, controlled use of force breeds men real men
0: yeah that's beautiful yeah it really does and i mean for you to be the top narcotics officer in texas potentially the top narcotics officer in the country to to have a sudden change in heart and and pivot the other direction i mean i think that's a prime example of of that level of bravery right because I mean, when you left the department, I mean, you were starting from zero, right? I mean, you, yeah, you, you had nowhere else to go, correct?
1: Yeah, and I lost all my friends. I'd been in law enforcement for so long. I, I only had law enforcement friends, so I lost my family. I lost everything I knew. Also dealing with that, there is no Santa Claus. I was also dealing with the fact that the stuff I did that I thought was heroic turns out to not be heroic. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, yeah, like I said, because of the way I raised, I was raised, it was easy for me to switch. It was easy. My mom used to tell me, it doesn't matter if a thousand people are in front of you telling you you're wrong. If you know you're right, you stand in front of those thousand people and you argue with them. So I didn't, I didn't at that moment that I left the police department, the drug task force, I didn't ask myself, you know. Is this a brave? Am I being a coward? No, none of those thoughts went through my. I just naturally took the new information I had and started telling the other side they were wrong, and this anti-prohibition side telling them they were right.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. So, so I want to I want to talk about cop busters because you actually helped a young woman get out of prison. Uh, a woman by the name of Yolanda M- M- Madden. And I, I actually followed that story quite closely because what happened to her was just, I mean, it was, it was fucking egregious. It was disgusting what they did to her. Can can you talk about what happened to Yolanda Madden just, I mean, just briefly?
1: Sure, I'd be happy to. Her, her father, she was, she had already served four years of an eight-year prison sentence in federal prison. <laughs> you don't get people out of federal prison. Her father came to me and said, can you help get her out? I said, I, I can guarantee you I will bring attention to her case, but I don't think she's going to get out. So when she was released a year later after that conversation, I was just as shocked at everybody. I couldn't believe it. I'm like, holy shit.
0: Mm-hmm. But I
1: did I did get her case attention by setting up a fake grow room in Odessa, Texas, uh, in the same jurisdiction I used to work in. And I lured him into raiding, doing a false raid. And I had all the cameras there and the media there. So it embarrassed law enforcement. It brought attention to her case. The judge reopened her case and released her. Why was she in prison? It was called an informant plant. And I was familiar with that. I told the father, I said, this is an informant plant. He's like, what? I said, yeah. So the informant gave Yolanda a Game Boy bag and said, here, this is your son's Game Boy controller because she's friends with the son. She goes, oh, thanks. She starts driving away, and the police pull her over. She didn't know there was an ounce of methamphetamine in there.
0: Why did they they set her up, Barry?
1: Well, the informant was busted. They had a case on the informant, and they tell the informant, like I used to, go set somebody up, and we'll drop your case. So the way the informant's supposed to do it is – catch somebody with an ounce of methamphetamine and know they got it and then inform the police but he put the ounce of methamphetamine on her so it was an informant plant it's the same as police in uh planting the drugs and the cops knew he did it see if an informant plants the drugs and the cops know it that's il- that's as illegal as a cop planting the drugs so she was released from federal prison and I got raided <laughs>
0: Yeah. Was that was that was that in, was that a direct response to to your I mean, you you used cop busters I actually watched the original video with the cops walking into the house. You guys had the note on the wall. I mean, you guys did everything to the letter of the law. Right. You guys did That's not. Right. You guys were 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 absolutely sure that you did everything correct. And you set these cops up. They were there illegally. They walked into that house illegally and you basically humiliated them. Now, was your house raided? In direct response to that
1: yes after the success of that i started doing what i call bag drop stings and i would take like 50 bucks marked us dollars and a a simulated crack pipe and a drug ledger and i would put it in a lunch pail that had a hidden gps this was back when gps was new so this was like some g4 you know agent 99 type stuff And I hid the GPS and I would set it out like at a car wash and make a call. Say there's a suspicious bag at the car wash. Then I'd sit back with my camera and film and I filmed the cop. Some of the cops turned it in. They would take the bag. We would track the GPS and it went to the police station. Then I would do an opens records request and get the report. The cop says I was called to a suspicious bag and I noticed this money in it and a crack pipe. So here it is all in the evidence room. That's how they're supposed to do it but one cop from Williamson County he threw everything away in the dumpster and kept the money that's illegal that's a felony he tampered with evidence and he stole so they rated me for that too so I got I got rated it I'll, I'll tell you this real, real quick this will help everybody told me that there was a conspiracy for law enforcement to get me I didn't believe it I didn't believe it. I didn't know the government worked like that. Mm -hmm. That's how dumb I was. Mm -hmm. But I kept getting raided and arrested. And then a hacker hacked some computer in Arizona, law enforcement computer, and got tens of thousands of police documents and flooded, um, posted them online. And in those documents was an FBI situational report, three pages about me and CopBusters, and there's a paragraph in there the fbi is saying his success will end when the local law enforcement joins together to take him out of commission mm-hmm. so basically the fbi was telling them form a conspiracy against this guy so they had instructions from the fbi to do this so the 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 fake grow room raid that I got Yolanda out of prison in Odessa and the bad drops, they lumped all that stuff together and started raiding me and arresting me. That's what happened. And it worked. You know, it worked. I went up against the most powerful cartel. Well, I don't want to call them a cartel, but they're similar against the most powerful government in the world. Mm -hmm. And they take, they protect their, positions very strong they take that shit serious they didn't think it was funny they didn't think i deserved an award because i was busting crooked cops they believed i should be in prison or dead and the last arrest went right before i decided to flee to venezuela the last arrest that cop's hand was shaking like this don't you move barry cooper i'll shoot you yeah and I started thinking, oh, shit, now I'm going to give one of these cops a name. They're trying to make a name for themselves, be, saying I'm the one who shot Barry Cooper. That's when I got the hell out of Dodge, and I haven't been back. So they took all that very serious. It was it was retaliation at a whole different level. I'm almost finished, but I'm not a victim. I'm mm-hmm. not a victim, and I'm not uh, bitter. I'm not upset. I understand why they did that to me it's it's still not right but i understand why they did that and i picked the fight so if you pick a fight and you get retaliated on you can't run around crying like you're the victim right yeah um yeah so i don't feel i don't feel any animosity or bitter at all my my animosity and bitterness if it's there is is to that they're still doing it to people they're still putting people in jail for cannabis yeah, that that, that, that aggravates them. not what they did to me, but what they're still doing to some of these people, because I've got a stack of I got eight cases right now. I keep cases on my desk. I get paid really well to be expert witness on drug cases. I work with my client's lawyer. So I'm reading police reports every week, constantly watching videos and I haven't quit for 15 years. And I thought by now, Jason, It would be over. When I left the United States, I thought, well, in about five years, the drug war will be ended, and I can come back. It got worse, man. It got worse. Yeah, and I I mean – I'm so sad. I'm sad about my country.
0: Yeah, well, you know, look, I'll say this. I I think potentially you were poking the bear a little bit with cop busters, but I think you were doing a a huge service because you were showing how – Corruption in law enforcement is locking people away for insane periods of time. I mean, Yolanda Madden got eight years in federal prison. She served four. When she was let out, did the state pay her any money? Did she sue them?
1: No, she had, the judge ordered a new trial. And instead of going through that new trial, they offered her a plea bargain. Said if you plead guilty, you don't go back to prison. So she pled guilty. So there was no way she could sue and retaliate on the state i'll tell you one worse than that i got a uh uh an email from a 25 year old young young black man in florida he had a uh what's that frog the ninja turtle frog backpack it was old he took a picture of it he said i sir barry i've been carrying this around since i was five years old when they put my dad in prison for marijuana seeds And I can't get anybody to look at that case. This is when I was in Venezuela at a very hot moment in my life where I was having to really be on my toes. I said, send me what you got in that bag. And I'll read it. And I read through it. I'm like, this guy's, they have a black man in Texas. He was sentenced to 30 years federal prison. He had already served 15 years and he had 15 years left for fucking marijuana seeds, bro. So I wrote a big article about how, you know, the Canadian activist, Mark Emery, and sold Mm -hmm. all those seeds to the U.S. and he only got five years. And and it turns out the same judge who released Yolanda is the judge on this case. He's not the one who sentenced him. The judge who sentenced him died. So I knew it was going to be easy for a judge to go ahead and rule against the former dead judge because judges don't normally like to rule against each other. So I, I played that to my advantage. Within a year of me taking that case, He was out of prison. They deported him back to Jamaica. And on Christmas day, he was hugging his old mama on the, on the airport runway. It was, it was freaking beautiful.
0: So, so in your mind, you know, look, uh, I mean, I can't even justify uh, prison terms like that for, you know, heroin, but, but cannabis. So full disclosure, I I'm, I'm a nightly cannabis user. I, I use cannabis every night. It's for me, it's a, it's a meditation, uh, 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 I guess tool or resource, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, it has a, a meditative, uh, meditative quality to me. You know, I smoke a half a joint at the end of the night, helps me relax, helps kind of take all the shit out of my head and just kind of, you know, set the Good night for off, you, man. set the night off, right. You know, um, Good for
1: you, that's a healthy way to live.
0: Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I, I lived a long time with, without using cannabis. I mean, my, I, I started using cannabis again, maybe, I don't know. I want to say five or six years ago, but prior to that, I was so stressed out all the time, you know, and, and, and I, I didn't have anything that kind of helped me meditate and just let my mind go of, or help my mind, let go of things that that were in there that didn't need to be in there anymore. And why do you think they've targeted marijuana the way that they have? Because to, I, I've always wondered this. You know, from what I understand, and and this may be a very rudimentary understanding of the science, but we have receptors in our body that are designed to receive uh, uh, cannabis. Right? It's the only. It's the only plant. It's the only. Uh, 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 yeah. It's the only plant. It's the only. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Organic material that we have receptors. In our, in our brains designed specifically to receive what it has. That's right. That's so right. it does, it's, it serves, it does serve, it serves some sort of purpose, one that we're not quite sure or, or aware of yet, I don't think. But why, why have they targeted marijuana and this? Why is it a schedule one uh, drug? I mean, it, it's, it's nowhere near as destructive as say methamphetamine or cocaine or heroin or anything like that. So
1: why is it still, why is it still classified in the same way? You know, I've wondered the same thing, and I'm certain your audience has wondered the same thing. And I pulled my brain and took all the experience I had trying to figure it out. And the only thing I can come up with, Jason, is they keeping marijuana illegal because they still think it harms the workforce. Like, I think they've done studies. They've taken a group of people who smoke marijuana versus a group of people that don't. And say they get two hours a week more efficient work out of the people who don't smoke marijuana. Well, they multiply that two hours times how many million of people are in the United States. And they go, okay, we've lost 3.5 billion hours of work because of marijuana use. So we're going to make it illegal. Now, marijuana first started being illegal for a racist reason. And I'm the first one to have said this on mainstream media. You can go see it on one of my Fox News interviews. I explained that uh, who was that guy back way back when that he got marijuana illegal by saying it it uh, causes white women to to seek relations with Negroes.
0: Oh, I I don't know who it was that said that, but
1: yeah. Oh, Anslinger, Harry Anslinger. He was the new head of DEA, but back then they called it something else and he testified before congress that marijuana makes you psychotic and it causes white women to seek relations with negroes that's just racist and it was it was seen in the mexican communities the most so to deal with the minorities Um, that were quote-unquote out of control, they made marijuana illegal so they could arrest all those minorities, similar to crack cocaine to arrest all the black guys. But yeah, I think they have poor data. I think they think marijuana harms. I I went back to get my master's in um, international relations, and that's where I learned. I knew armies were important, for a country to be successful. I knew militaries were important, but the economy is just as important. The economy for countries, if you know it or not, that is super important in international relations. It's important to politicians. It's important because it's a measure of what society is doing. And you start tapping into that and fucking with that, and they're going to pull back. And for some reason, they have the data that marijuana smokers work less or they're lazy. Number two, I think, they also know the power of how marijuana will cause you to say no to your boss. You know, (laughs) you'll quit, you'll quit believing all that shit. That's what it did to me. I told you my, my third wife that got me smoking marijuana, I would smoke it and I would start thinking different. (laughs) I would start thinking different. And my thinking was anti-government. Yeah. So I think cannabis brings about compassion and a spirit of truthfulness inside of a person's soul and that doesn't work well with their propaganda Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah yeah so the marijuana is directly in conflict with the labor force and the noodle up here and they know that that's the only reason i can think they still got it illegal yeah, just doesn't make sense.
0: I mean, we've we've decriminalized it in Canada, and and you know, I mean, it's it hasn't really impacted anything in terms of you know, and in, in fact, for me at least, uh, I feel like if I if I smoke a joint the night before, I get out of bed a lot easier the next morning. You know, I don't, I'm True. not carrying all that shit around. But okay, I, so so you become an anti drug war advocate now. I, I want to ask you. You know, did you see a lot of corruption in the police force? Uh, you know, while you were a narcotics officer, like, were you experiencing a lot of, of other cops planting drugs on people and 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 you know, jacking people up for, for you know, uh, trumped up char- on trumped up charges, pretty much?
1: I did not see a lot of that. I've never seen anybody plant drugs, and I've never planted drugs. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, later in my law enforcement career, I would take a hundred or two hundred dollars out of a drug stash. I'm I am more ashamed and embarrassed of that than anything I did in law enforcement is I stole drug money and I knew it was wrong and I did it anyway. Yeah, but that's got that's actually be, that's, that's actually be pretty worse. Common. Yeah, that's it really wasn't not the men I hung around. I'll tell you what was common if you call this corruption, but what I saw a lot of was violating people's civil rights. Lying on reports, searching them when I didn't have probable cause and making up the probable cause, getting our drug dog to false alert. In 2006, when I released that traffic stop video, I was the whistleblower on drug dogs false alert. And the people lost their damn minds when I came out on the news and said cops make their dogs false alert. Because there's only three, three probable causes a cop can search your car. Plain sight, an informant tip, or a canine alert unless you have consent, but I'm talking about probable causes, an informant tip, plain sight where the officer sees the drugs out in plain sight and a canine alert. So if you didn't get a tip and I didn't see anything plain sight and I would run my dog around the car after they refused consent, if my dog didn't alert, I had to let him go. Mm-hmm. And I didn't like that. So I taught my dog to false alert. I could give him a little command and he would jump up and scratch. And I go there, now I'm gonna search your car. So the corruption that I, and, and and being rough with people, um, arresting them and going overboard physically with them, we were too rough. It's a lot lot of that, but in terms of planning drugs, stealing money, no, not, I, I'm certain other task force did that, but that wasn't, that wasn't embedded in my task force. If Mm. it was, I didn't see it.
0: Yeah, I mean the stealing money thing makes sense, right? Because it's drug money, right? If it's a th- if there's a thousand dollars in the glove box and nine hundred ends up in the evidence locker, who knows the difference, right? But
1: right, <clears> still I mean, wrong, though. Still bad, wrong.
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean i I'm not I'm not condoning it, but I do understand it, right? Sure. Um, sure. um. Now, so you make the pivot. You go through this, you know, just repeated raids on your home, and you decide. Okay, I gotta get the fuck out of here. But first, your son is taken from you. Can you can you talk about that a little bit? Because that story in itself to me is completely absurd.
1: Yeah. So my son is autistic. He's my stepson. Mm-hmm. And the father who I still think molested him, he was just a shit father. But this conspiracy I told you about where the FBI told local law enforcement to to gather and, and shut me down. Part of that was law enforcement and the lawyers who hated me contacting my son's real father because he had the power to really fuck me up. And he filed an emergency order to take take our son. After we busted those cops, boom. We let our son go for visitation to East Texas. And when we went to try to get him back, we were served with an order that we couldn't get him back. So my my wife went a month without seeing her autistic son. And it was at the hands of the evil father and the government, all working together to take they try to make us look like bad parents. They couldn't catch me with a felony. Even those raids on my households were misdemeanor raids. You know, I've never raided anybody for a misdemeanor. You're not supposed to, but they did me. Mm-hmm. And they kept trying to show that we were bad parents. They kept trying to prove or show that we were giving our kids drugs. We were not. Um, you know, drug test them, drug test them. And, and thank goodness Travis County stepped in. They sent their most high-profile uh, CPS agent to work our case. He did a thorough investigation, and he later said in his report that the kids look happy, healthy, and well-cared for to me. Um, there's no abuse going on. But by then it was too late. We were already wrapped up in court in East Texas. So after they took my son by the emergency order, they forced us into a trial over there, and we lost him permanently. Uh, My wife only uh, the only thing she kept were visitation rights Mm. to see her. And and listen, listen. When you see the videos of this, they've done they they've done test audiences. You know these big films, these multi-million dollar films. They do test audiences, and they did with my film, and not a dry eye, they say, in the theater. Mm. And I know it has to be about part where my autistic son is screaming for the mother, and the mother's crying, and I had to deal with that every fucking week while I was working on my cases, while I was in court, while I was busting cops, while I was being Barry Cooper. i tell you what, for a decade, Jason, for a decade, I lived in fight. Or flight mode 24 7 didn't know any other way as soon as i woke up it was time to fight or run and i lived like that for 10 years thinking that's how life is i had no idea i was in fight or flight mode until a skunk um you know skunk magazine they sent a writer to do an interview with me and he said dude you're you're you got ptsd mm-hmm. i'm like what do you mean he said, you're hypervigilant. I said, what's hypervigilant? he said, well, when somebody knocks on the door, the whole house runs to them, locks the door and you're checking everything, that's called hypervigilance. I thought that's just how you live. I didn't know that wasn't normal. So I lived that for 10 years. Like I said, later in Mexico, started doing too many drugs, became a drug addict. But now that I'm living in the Philippines, this is where I got healed. And it's going to show that in this documentary, I have zero PTSD symptoms. I quit drinking for one. I quit drinking four years ago. No drugs, exercise, eat healthy. And now if there's a loud noise in the house, it's just another loud noise. It's not a cop coming through the door. So I have that drug war really rattled my cage, bro. Oh, I got their point across. But now, now I'm better. So I'm proof that you can go through a whole lot of drama and trauma And if you keep getting up, dressing up and show up, you're going to continue to win in this video game. Because this this documentary is less about the drug war and more about how to keep bouncing back. And I filmed everything, too. My crazy moments, everything. And I didn't pick through the tapes. I had the tapes hidden in three different places in the U.S. When I signed the movie deal, I had them ship those tapes. I said, now, listen, you may even find some porn in there. Me and one of my wives you know, filming our own porn. I don't know what's in there, but I'm not going to hand pick and just give you the good parts. I want you to see all of it. So you're going to see all of it. And by the way, they did find some porn. (laughs) My my second wife, me and my second wife. (laughs) So going back to the
0: timeline. So, uh, so your guys CPS comes in, tries to take your son away. Um, you guys get them back in your custody. And that's that's the point where you guys decide it's, t- it's time to get out of here.
1: Yes, I had already planned that once I got my cases done, I didn't want to flee while I was in the middle of my cases. Then I'd have a bunch of warrants for not showing up in court. So I got all of that done. I had planned months, planned this for months. So the instant uh, my cases were dismissed and I reached that plea bargain within 30 days, I was gone. Mm-hmm. I was on a cruise ship. We left from Florida, went to Aruba, Aruba to Venezuela. Wow. Because I promised my wife, I said, what do you want to do? You know, I wanted to go back and bust cops. When they raid me and stuff, as soon as they would leave, I'm like, I'd be planning another cop sting. <laughs> and, I, you know, that's that's overzealous, right? Yeah. But, but I listened to my wife and she said, just, can you just fix it where me and Zach aren't ever apart? I'm like, is that the most important thing to you? Is that what you want? Yep. And I always gave all my wives anything they wanted. I loved all my wives dearly. And I was always very close to them. And just because a marriage ends doesn't mean it failed. My marriages didn't fail. They just ended. People grow apart. But uh, so I promised her, I said, okay, I'm going to figure out how to keep you and Zach together. And that's when I came up with the plan to take them to Venezuela. We lived Mm. on a beach. Mm. Had a good time. Except it it was, like I said, it's kind of violent there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, so now you, you have this Netflix documentary series coming out on your life, which, you know, if there's anybody, I think that that warrants a, a, a documentary series, it's you. And, um, and I mean, I, I how does it feel to finally be able to, you know, tell your story in full to, to a wide audience? It, it, it
1: feels good. Not necessarily, you know, just so you know, on the outside looking in, on the outside looking in, you see this story as an incredible story. When you're living it, you just see it as everyday life. So, uh, the only reason I know it's a good story is because everybody wanted to buy it. And Netflix has spent millions of dollars with the Tiger King executive producer making the story out of my life. But, um, I'm glad this documentary is coming out more for the reason that I feel like I have something to say. And I feel like I have something to teach. And if you're not relevant, people don't hear you. Mm -hmm. And if you become relevant, they all of a sudden want to know what you have to say. And I got so much to say. I lived in a, I feel like I've been in a cave for a decade (laughs) and I had to you know, I, I I used that time to educate myself more, to get healed, to hopefully become more sophisticated. Now I'm ready to get out of this fucking cave and start helping at a much higher level. Now, this movie has, hasn't been just all roses. Weirdly and crazy enough, my own daughter, and you will see this in the Netflix. My own daughter, and we were a very close hippie family. They thought I killed their mother. When their mother drowned in Florida next to her boyfriend, who was my best friend, he was four feet away from her. They blamed me for her death. They thought I killed her. Well, it turns out before she died, she had convinced my kids that I had murdered somebody and nobody knew it. And her motive was to take this movie deal and to take Never Get Busted. So my wife and my two daughters were scamming and planning to take Never Get Busted, because they knew I had this movie deal and they wanted part of it. So to get, it's called parental alienation, to get my kids to turn against me, because we were so close. I was that hippie father. We did everything together. She knew she had a lie, so she convinced them that I was a violent person and I had murdered somebody and they turned on me. When they learned that Billy was sentenced to life, He's in life, in prison now in life, three years after her murder. He went to trial. They found him guilty, of course. Then it's like, okay, dad didn't murder her, but I'm going to call the FBI about this guy he murdered a long time ago. And they started calling the police. Now, the daughter that was doing this, she's got a pill problem, a pill problem, alcohol problem. Mm -hmm. So when she called the FBI, and this is just two years ago. When she called to these people and said, I'd murdered somebody, they called me and said, look, we, we don't believe you murdered anybody. We can tell she's screwed in her gourd. And and it's, it's, it's so hard for me to talk about my own daughter, even if I'm defending myself because to defend myself, I have to talk bad about her and what father sits there and talks, enjoys talking bad about their own kid. Now she's a grown woman. Now she's 25, 26 years old. So when that didn't work, uh, calling the FBI about somebody I didn't murder. She called one of my Facebook friends who recorded it. And she claimed that I had raped, molested and tortured her for years, for years. Listen, I'm old school. My daughters haven't even seen me in my underwear. So to hear that, to hear that shit coming from her. So here's the thing with attention comes that type of bullshit. So I found myself having to defend myself in some of this filming with Netflix. They said, "Well, what about this? Well, what about this? Well, what about this?" And I had to tell my side of the story. Mm. So it's not it's not all roses for me. <laughs> I'll tell you. They started I signed the deal 4 years ago. And this last 4 years, whoa. I'm glad I quit drinking. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean it sounds it sounds like your life has just been one constant roller coaster. I mean, to be accused of murder, especially murdering your wife, that's so uh, just to go back on that so that her boyfriend, who was your best friend, he's the one who's currently in prison uh, for, for her actual murder. That's right. Oh. When we
1: were in Me- when we were in Mexico, I invited my best friend from Florida to come visit us. My wife and that best friend fell in love. They were just alcohol saturated. They're both alcoholics. Uh, my deceased wife bad alcoholic. In fact, in fact, her blood alcohol content upon death, the autopsy came back, is 0. 0.45, not 0. 0.25, not 0. 0.35, 0. 0.45. And I knew she was a bad alcoholic, but I understood it was because of them taking her kid and all the the stuff we did and running through Venezuela and Brazil. I thought she would get over it, but she didn't. It kept getting worse and worse and worse. She fell in love with my best friend. They went to Florida. Left me. I was alone in Mexico. 6 months later, he caught her in bed with another woman on a cruise. They took a cruise? He's opened the door and he, she was in bed with another woman and they had promised that they weren't going to cheat on each other. So he kicked her out, and my other best friend from East Texas went to Florida and got her, and they became lovers. He's the one who murdered her. Wow. Drown her. Strang- strangulation and drowning. Oh, my God. On a on a deserted, secluded beach. We think he killed her in a hotel room and took her to the beach, staged it, make it look like a drowning. But yeah... It, I'm not crying now. You don't see me all distraught, but I was when I learned my kids thought I had killed her. And no matter what I said, they I, I, they would not listen to any evidence. Have you ever been right? And, and to prove you're right, you just give handfuls of evidence, but the more evidence you give, the, give, the worse it gets. That's mm-hmm. what was happening to me. And I was so fucking devastated, bro. That's how I wound up a drug addict. I used to just party on drugs and all of a sudden I'm in the middle of this, started using a little more, use a little more, use more. Next thing I know, I'm an addict. Wow. It was, it. I was devastated and I, I had to get healed from all of that. So you're looking at a healed Barry. If I'm not crying now and all that, just understand. I went through that process of devastation, losing my family. I lost everything, everything. When I met Mia, I had a beautiful little condo. I always kept a nice house and one suitcase full of stuff. Mm-hmm. When Mia and I came to the Philippines, we had two suitcases full of stuff. Her suitcase and my suitcase started mm-hmm. all over from scratch. That's that's
0: yeah. that's a wild life, man. I mean, you've started over multiple times. And I mean, you must have, you must have, I mean... What's it like to go through life without any real foundation underneath you and to constantly be betrayed betrayed over and over and over again?
1: I I wish somebody would have prepared me for it. I didn't have older people teaching me, hey, Barry, as you go throughout life, your best friends, your wife, your pastor, they're all going to fuck you over. My pastor who I learned to preach under, he had an affair with my first wife. Whoa! He admitted it. He fell at my feet. Oh, I'm so sorry, Barry. I'm so sorry. I'm like, Jake, get up. Just, I'm just leaving your church. I always had beautiful wives, right? Uh, all my wives have been beautiful. But nobody told me that my best friends and the pastor would be after them. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll, I'll tell you this. I'll tell you this. Being betrayed by people that are close to you is a part of uh, American culture. It's not like that here in Asia. Mm -hmm. but it's part of American culture. And if you know that's going to happen, it doesn't devastate you as bad when it does happen because you expect it, Mm -hmm. right? But I wasn't expecting any of this. It was one friend, one wife after another, I mean, putting the screws to me. And you know what the root of all of it was? Most of it, fucking jealousy, jealousy, man. You know, the Bible says, the Bible says, jealousy is crueler than the grave. So I was taught anywhere there's cruelty, there's probably jealousy. And I've found that to be true. It turns out these motherfuckers that I thought were my friends and my pastor, I thought they were going along with me as I was growing. They were riding on my coattail and jealous the the whole time and just waiting for a moment where where they thought I would slip. And when they thought I slipped, they stick the knife in my back. Mm. Hurt, hurt 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 you have no idea because i'm a good friend i'm the best friend anybody can ever have i'm loyal to the core i don't fuck people over uh, i can keep secrets obviously the type of work i do so i'm a really good friend to have but they don't teach friendships in the united states they don't teach what it's what you're supposed to do to be a good friend it's just everybody fucking everybody yeah sad it's the culture
0: yeah and i mean I think in your case, man, you know, just from my assessment, I think you're a pure soul, and I think pure souls have a hard time with that because, because of the undying loyalty and because of your willingness to be vulnerable, you know. I've been told that, and and I think that's, I mean, that's what I gather. You know, you're a colorful guy, but I could tell you're 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 a sweetheart, man, and and it. People like that, people like you, you tend to attract shitty people. you know, i'm I'm a similar way. I'm less colorful. I'm more blacks and whites and grays. But you know i'm 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 very i'm I'm very much the same way, and I've attracted a lot of those people in my life as well. But um, you know, I've my response has always been to kind of keep make my circle smaller and smaller, just kind of keep constricting it. And just keep cutting out the weak people. Now that I'm older, I I, I'm able to recognize weak people a lot faster, and I don't allow weak people near me because, because exactly what you're describing, the type of people that 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 you attracted, and the same type of people that I attracted at times in my life, they're just they're weak people, and they're looking to latch on to a strong person, right? Hundred
1: percent,
0: yeah. And so
1: that's a correct analysis right there. And I've since learned, especially meeting my wife that I've been with now for 8 years. She's a Filipina and Asians have a incredible amount of wisdom. And that's the first thing she brought to my attention is that you're all these people around you are screwing you, Barry. So, I went through that process too and now I'm not a hermit, I'm not a hermit, but nobody gets next to me. Nobody yeah. gets close to me. I got a I got a circle of 7 people who help me run this machine and that's fucking it and they're all family except two. Mm -hmm. So I'm not, I'm, I'm positioning myself because I know this big moment's about to happen. I'm positioning myself because I'm going to have enough flying through the air, enough balls up in the air as it is to not have that poisonous person in my life. Like my former pastor and my best friends and my snaky ass wives, they're not going to be in the picture this time because I'm not letting any new people in. I, I can't, I can't in the position I am. I can't, I can't, it's life or death. If I go out and I slip and I start making friends and bringing them home, I got a lot to lose. And, and, you know, for some reason, men, and I don't mean to, but a lot of men get intimidated around me for no reason at all. They get intimidated. They get jealous. And I don't mean to bring these emotions up in them. I've learned it's something in them. It's not me doing anything wrong. I'm just living. But it turns out there's a lot of men like that. A lot of men who are Or instead of cheering on um, success, instead they're mad and angry and jealous of your success. So yeah, I don't let them in. Just like you said, just like you said, I got a small circle. And I know a lot of people say that because it's like the popular thing to say, like Mm. I got a small circle, but I do. I'm unfucking touchable in terms of civilians getting me. Now the government can come get me whenever they want. If the government wants you, they're gonna get you. So me me being over here in the Philippines is not keeping them from getting me. Um I'm here in the Philippines strictly because of the the lifestyle. Mm-hmm. You know, like I said, I don't have any more symptoms of PTSD. It feels good. <laughs> so do you still
0: do you still feel like they like they like they're out for you, like they like they want to bring you in? Do you feel well, I, like they're yeah?
1: I'm on I'm on Interpol. That's probably a reason why I have 108,000 subscribers on my Never Get Busted Live channel. By the way, y'all join me Tuesday nights, Never Get Busted Live. And you can also join NGB 400. It's the only activist group in the world. It's $15 a month. And we review real police reports and we get real people out of jail. You know this business I have, Expert Witness? I've opened them up. And twice a week, we meet on Zoom. Sometimes we have emergency meetings. And I teach the members how to spot holes in police reports and police videos and then we generate a report and give it to my client's lawyer to help them out so join us never get busted live and the ngb 400 and i got to talking so fast what was i talking about jason there's a point uh, I was making. Well,
0: you actually you you lit something up in my head that we can we can pivot in that direction. NGB 400. That's that's a that's a fantastic idea, man. I I, I was reading a little bit about it um, on your website. Can you go into that a little bit more? Because I mean, you guys are actually
1: getting people out of prison. Yeah, yeah, and I'd love to talk about it. For years, I I wanted to duplicate what I did, but because of what I do is so unique. It takes a lot of time so if i trained one person to do what i did it would take a year or two of training and then if that one person left i was right back me doing it myself so i decided to just make it an activist group <laughs> it's fifteen dollars a month and you actually meet with me and we actually look at real police reports first thing i do is teach search and seizure through the through the eyes of a cop i said look y'all I had to learn how I could search that person's car That's how I learned there's only three ways you can search a car plain sight informant tip or a canine alert That's how I learned that because I'm on the highway thinking, okay how can I search this in my burger so I had to learn my laws really good and I've broken those down in what we call an ngB four hundred cheat sheet and when you learn this cheat sheet, you can pour through any search warrants through any uh any um, traffic stop videos or any buy busts and you can point out what the cops did wrong. We have a, we have a good time. Now we only want smart people, serious people don't show up, not sober because these are recorded and I don't want the courts to see us as some rag tab, rad tag hippie group. We're not, we're a very serious foundation and, and that's something else I look forward to when Netflix airs. I'm ready to fill that class up. We've got less than 50 members now, and I want to get 5,000. I want to get 50,000. I want, because there's so much garbage on the internet about law enforcement. There's a ton of police channels, some really good police channels, but most of them have it wrong. Most of them are so bent on hating cops that everything the cops do is wrong right so that kind of waters down when the cop really does do something wrong so i explain okay the cops were right here the cops were wrong here now let's free let's free our client and i'm ready for that to scale up like it's going to after they air the documentary
0: yeah and and you still do a lot of expert witness work as well right i mean you you definitely uh you you help a lot of people who have been you know, wrapped up in something that that maybe they shouldn't be wrapped up in, or they're getting you know charged with something heavier than they should be. You you do a lot of work for people in that L- way, right?
1: Liter- literally every day, every day I'm reviewing a case, or I'm on the phone with an American who has a case. I got eight cases right now. I try not to get more than ten, but just uh, less than a month ago, I got 200 pounds of marijuana dismissed. Wow, they raided the guy, they got 200 pounds of marijuana and I got it dismissed. I'll tell you how. They gave me the discovery. They already had two lawyers look at it. He said, "Okay, Barry, I'll hire you, but it's a long shot. I think they got me." With with my uh experience, I th- they didn't include the actual buy. Like normally if you're going to go in, if the informant's going to go in and buy drugs and come out The officer puts in his report that I I checked the money, I marked the money, I gave him this amount of money, I watched him go in the door and come out and bring me the drugs. They left that out of the report. You know why? I told my client, I said, I'll bet you that informant stole some money because that happens a lot. It turns out he did. So he went to his lawyer and said, look what Barry found. The lawyer told the prosecutor, I think y'all have some missing discovery. And prosecutor says, oh yeah, sorry, here's 45 more pages. And when we reviewed that 45 pages, it clearly talked this description. The officer gave him drug money. He went in, came back out. The informant gave him 10 pounds of marijuana. They raided it and got 200 pounds of marijuana, but they didn't put in there that the informant was supposed to leave $10,000, but he only left 7,000. He put the other 3,000 in his shoe. So he stole the buy money. Why is that important? Because now the informant is not credible anymore. For this to work for cops, there's that word credible. Well, this takes away his credibility. So the government had to had to dismiss the case. I do stuff like that all the time. And, That's what and, I do.
0: And and I mean, there's obvious monetary motivation for that, but but are, but are there other motivations for, for doing that type of work for you?
1: Sure, sure. Everything I've done all my life, I've always enjoyed it and made money at it. For instance, instance, I went and rode a limousine back when I was 25, 26 years old. And I'm like, holy shit, I love limousines. So I went and bought a limousine. The payments were $1,000 a month. And I rented out on the weekend. And one weekend, I would earn the $1,000, go pay the bank. Then I had it rest of the month free to do whatever I want, to party in it or to rent it out. I made a lot of money doing that. The same with my DVDs. You know those DVDs I told you when I flipped? I did that to make money, but it was something I was passionate about too. So yes, this expert witness thing, that's what's paid my bills for 15 years. That's how I live abroad. Cause all I need is a laptop to review evidence, get on the phone and talk to a lawyer and I get paid really good to do it. The problem was there were too many poor people and I was doing their cases for free and I had to quit. So that's another uh, NGB 400 perk. These people that contact me that can't pay my exuberant fees because I charge between $5,000 and $20,000 a case, most people can't afford that. So guess what I'm doing now? I let the NGB 400. We'll, we'll meet on a Thursday and, and say, look, this is one we want to adopt. Let's read the report. Let's make a report. Let's work with them. Mm. We've got two we We've got two clients now at NGB 400 that we're trying to free. In the middle of working those two cases, that's when I teach.
0: Wow. So your schedule is pretty, pretty jam packed.
1: I stay busy. I stay busy. I, I take time to myself, but yeah, I love my job. Mia said the other night, somebody was saying something about me working. And I said, I've worked probably four or five days a week. She said, you work seven days a week. <laughs> you work seven days a week. And she's right. <laughs> Now, I still have time for her, but I'm always thinking up here, especially with this documentary coming out. I got to be on my toes. I got to pray for wisdom. I got to pray for humility. A whole lot of things that I've got to be for this blessing to not become a curse. Mm -hmm. So, So, yeah, I work a lot.
0: Yeah, so... I um I know we both got to get running here pretty soon, but, but I want to talk to you about the spiritual aspect of it because, you know, you talked about at one point, you know, you, you had I guess your, your wife had led you down a path where, you know, you no longer believed in God and, and, and then you, you slowly found your way back to that. Can you talk about that journey a little bit?
1: Sure. And that's recent. I, I, I thought, Well, if she's right about the drug war, and she is, then maybe she's right about Jesus. Listen, I was a dedicated Christian most all my life, and especially when I was a preacher. I didn't sin. People say you sin every day. Okay, whatever. I didn't sin, meaning I didn't cheat on my wife. I didn't steal. I didn't screw people. In fact, I don't don't understand how, how a Christian cannot not sin. It's just too easy to live a fruitful life and not cheat on your wife and steal money and harm people, right? So it's not a hard thing to not sin. And I was like that, and I was very dedicated Christian. And then so when I turned away and renounced all of that, I... Well, if there is a God, it's a good thing. He's got mercy and tenderness and patience because he was, he was merciful to me. He was tender and he was patient because I recently, after I told you four months ago, when they put that diary in front of me and I saw that she'd been praying the whole time. She's the one who turned me away from God. It reminded me of Eve, Adam and Eve, you know, Eve lured Adam away, said here, there is no God. Candy did the same thing to me. And I started noticing, especially COVID. I started noticing, I couldn't help but notice prophecies in the Bible were coming true. For instance, for instance, you know, there's a prophet, there's a, a Bible prophecy that talks about the mark of the beast, and you can't buy any food without it. You can't trade without it. Well, we sort of went through that when we had to have our vaccine card. And, and I have a feeling this digital thing that they've got, that they're coming out with, with the digital money, if you're not a good boy, you can't eat. They'll just shut your money off, right? I think that's where we're headed. Mm -hmm. But but back to my spiritual thing, I started noticing the prophecies, and then I remembered that closeness that I always felt with God, and I missed it. I was always close to God. He, he like, walked with me. I talked to him all the time. I, I probably prayed more than any five preachers. And I was I'm not I'm not doing the real religiosity type praying, like to make me look good or I'm gonna pray 30 minutes. No, I was talk to God. My mother taught me that. And I was always close to him and I missed it. And and I realized whether God is real or not, his principles and ways makes a makes for a better life. So I lived the conservative Christian life. Then I lived the hippie drug life and I loved both of them. But to have a more enriched life is the conservative life. So I recently, you know, I went back to Jesus. Mm -hmm. I still have a lot of questions, but uh, I recently said, hey, you know, God, I'm sorry, you know, for talking to you like that. I wasn't sorry for going out and doing drugs and Getting into bar fights for something that didn't bother me. What bothered me is some of the stuff I said to God on my way out, <laughs> you know. But I thought He betrayed me, bro. I thought God had betrayed me because the pain was so fucking. The emotional pain I went through actually created a physical pain right here. Mm-hmm. I could feel physically it hurting. And I thought, you tricked me. You. T- <laughs> All those years I served you and you fucking tricked me. You did this to me. The fuck's wrong with you, God? You know, just like that, and worse. But now that I've had time to see and look back and look forward and see what the world's turning into, and I've lived different lives, I I I went back to I went back to Jesus with mm-hmm. this just this last year. Me too. So whether Jesus is real or not. I think he is, but even if he's not, it doesn't hurt to believe in something. That's the thing. That It is true that if you don't believe in anything, you will fall for everything. I think that's the little thing they say. But yeah, so who knows what's going to happen? Who knows what's going to happen? I know it's The churches I went to a long time ago, they believed in the gifts of the Holy Spirit, prophecy, speaking in tongues, all of that. And and for years, preachers would call me out and prophesy over me that I would go through the worst fire that you could ever feel. I would be ground to powder, but don't quit because when I reemerge, I'll never forget this this prophecy. When I reemerge, my voice will be heard at all four corners of the earth. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I don't I'm not interpreting that that I'm gonna go back to preaching. Who knows? But I am interpreting it as I've got something to share and something to save to help humans. I don't want to fight anymore. I want to heal. Like I turn from a warrior into a healer. You know, other people can go out there and shoot at each other and all that. I'm not going to. I want to be the ambulance that drives up and helps kind of clean up the mess. <laughs> That's sort of how I see myself as somebody who just it's so cliche isn't it to say to help others but i really do like helping others that's what i like to do when i, I see them in like, a pos- when i see them in a position in life and i'm like I-, I can fix that that's what i love to teach
0: i think it's a beautiful thing man i think it's a beautiful thing and you know it's it, my my life hasn't been nearly as wild as yours but we parallel each other in the, uh, in the same way in term and spiritually, you know, I, I've been called back this year myself. So, you know, I totally wow, get where man. you're coming from. Yeah. It's, it's been, how'd really that feel? Cool. You know, it was, um, what led you away? Well, it's, it's a long story, but I, okay, I mean, okay. um, my, my, my dad was a born again, evangelical Christian, uh, growing up. Um, he struggled with drug and alcohol addictions, and um he was part of some really questionable churches you know uh cult-like behavior and uh it just turned me off you know my experiences going to those churches and being around those people just turned me off because I was around the wrong kind of Christians and um I just went I was never a non-believer you know I never went through an atheist period in my life I always believed in, in a God, I just considered myself agnostic. And, and earlier this year, I just, you know, we were talking about it a bit before we started recording, but, you know, my writing really took off out of nowhere. And, you know, all of the success that I've experienced thus far has been completely organic. I haven't paid a dollar for any of the exposure or anything that I've had. It's just all kind of happened.
1: Congratulations, man. Congratulations. Cause you and have a, you have a, a notable reach.
0: Yeah, well, thank you, sir. And, and, and uh, I just know that God is at work in my life. I just know that it's, it's strange. And I'm, I'm sure you can relate to this. But when God's calling you, you hear it, you just know it. It's, it's unlike anything else you've, you've heard before. And that's, that's what happened to me. I just, I just heard God calling and I knew immediately what it was. And it was strange. It's something intrinsic. It's inside of you. You know, it's not, It's, it's something innate. It's not, it's It's it's, spiritual. Yeah. It's, it's, it's something completely internal and I just felt it. And uh, yeah. And so I just, I just went with it, man, you know, because I, my life, like I said, my life has not been nearly as crazy as yours and isn't nearly as fascinating as, as your story is. But, you know, I've been through a lot of ups and downs and I've, I've, and I've been through a lot of things in my life and, and, you know, it's it's funny cuz you were talking about about what led you there and and at times feeling like you had been betrayed and i felt the same way i felt at times that i had been abandoned by god and um you know i just felt like like that that relationship was just one that wasn't meant for me one that i wasn't going to have but now wow. in retrospect i i know that i went through everything that i've been through in order to get here so that when I heard that calling, I knew exactly what it was. And all of the, all of the that shit, familiar voice, that's right. But all that shit that I went through, I had, it was a prerequisite for me being here now. And, you know, you telling your story and me listening to everything that you've had to say, I think it's a similar situation for you. I think everything that you've gone through as wild as your life has been was a prerequisite for you being here now, you know, and yeah. Before- Yeah, please go.
1: It's okay. Sorry to interrupt, but it's kind of like, you know, if people are going to down me for believing in Jesus, it's sort of unjustified because it should be, it should be, oh, all that happened to him and you know what he did? he went back to Jesus. (laughs) You know, I'm not killing people. I'm not robbing. I'm not in prison. Thank God. I'm not hurting anybody. So it should be cheered on. Unfortunately for some reason, do you feel, do you feel like sometimes when you tell people you're a Christian that they, they think you're a little crazy? Do you ever feel that?
0: I do, but you know, when they do that, I feel bad for them. You know, like for myself, I, it's still very early I, I don't know if i would necessarily call myself a full-fledged christian but my connection to god is established and it's there you know and yeah. and uh i i talk to god on a daily basis i have those conversations every single day and it's exactly the way you described it it's not sitting there with your hands together you know on your knees praying in the traditional way it's just me walking around my house talking to god or in my car having a conversation with god and you know i when people look that at that shit me,
1: works that it oh, works
0: boy oh boy it does works. it ever and and you know i'll tell you a story because i think i think this will resonate with you and i think you'll like it so you'd love to hear it october 25th of this year i was working a job i was i was working at a company where i was doing the work of about three or four people Um, around summertime this, this last year, I started to get chest pains and my fingertips were going numb and I was sweating profusely in my sleep. I was, I was on the verge of a heart attack, man. Like I was right there. Mm -hmm. And uh, at the same time, my writing was taking off and I was trying to balance the two, but I couldn't, I couldn't really manage the two, you know? So I'm here in Alberta first or first snow of the year. And I'm taking all the back roads because the highway's a disaster, right? Of course, nobody has winter tires on their cars yet. So everybody's sliding around. And I'm telling you, man, I was so broken down. I was so stressed out. I was so, I was just, I was at the end of my rope, man. And uh, just sitting in my car and I was just talking to God. I'm like, look, man, I, I need, I need you to show me the path. I need you to show me the way here because I don't, I don't, this ain't for me. I can't do this anymore. Like I'm going to die. Like I'm actually going to fucking die. Like I'm so stressed out. I'm so exhausted. Mm. Like I'm gonna die. And uh, I was just like, "Look, I just need you to illuminate the path. Show me the way. As long as you show me the way, I won't question it. I will just go. I won't question it. I won't try to control it. I won't try. I won't try to to manipulate anything about it. I will just go. I went to work. Fifteen minutes later, I got laid off. That same day, I had the first episode of this podcast.
1: Dude. Dude, yeah. you, you got up, dressed up, and showed up. That's one of the things uh, I say a lot. Just get up, dress up, and show up, and things will happen. So you got fired from your job. You didn't really know what you were going to do. You didn't even wait a day to get up and dress up and show up. You got up, dressed up, and showed up, and wrote an article. But <laughs> no, but,
0: but, but here's the crazy part. I was, I was, was, I had the first guest for this episode booked on that day previously. But oh. I was late for work because it was the first snow day of the year. And if I was late for work, that meant I was going to have to stay late. And if I had to stay late, I wouldn't have made it back here in time in order to do the podcast. So I got to ask God. I said, please just show me the way. Show me what I need to be doing. I got to work. I got laid off. I made it home. And I launched the podcast. And Now here you and I are talking to each other.
1: See, that's beautiful. I call that synchronicity. It's more than just a coincidence. Yeah. And I've I've checked many times, like, okay, God, if you want me to do this deal, open the doors. If you don't want me to do this deal, shut the doors. And then the next day, something would fall apart. I'm like, hmm, that's one door shut. And then a week later, something else shuts. And about the third time, then I know that's God speaking to me. Don't do that. Or vice versa. He'll, the next day, I'll get a call about this deal. Mm-hmm. And it'll build and grow better. And then we bring on another team member that I wasn't expecting and easy. And that's sort of how I've checked God's perfect will for me. Like if I want this so bad, God, you have no idea how bad I want to do this. But if it's not in your perfect will, shut all the doors. And it sounds like you asked God the same thing. and i don't I don't mean to be preaching or getting too spiritual, but this is important. Look what it did for you, bro. Oh, yeah, look what it's look what it's done for me. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And so, you know,
0: when people when, you know, just to answer your question, like when, when I, I'm not shy about talking about uh, talking about my relationship with God, you know, I'm not out there banging the fucking drum and dancing around in the streets, you know, with a, with a, with a, you know, rosary around my neck, you know, but, but if people ask, I'll, I'll talk about it. And, and, you know, I don't know if people look at me like I'm strange, or like I'm crazy. I just feel bad for them because they're missing that connection. Their antenna, their antenna is not up, you know? And so, yeah, you know, like that's, that's it for me. I just, I, I like, I just look at, I, I look at God as a, as a, as an omnipotent force that's in, it's both objective and subjective at the same time. We can observe it, but it's also inside of us. Mm. And you know, I just view it as a signal that we're that that we're all able, capable of receiving, but only some of us are willing to receive it. And so, when somebody's you know says I'm crazy or looks at me weird, I just feel bad. I just feel like, man, you know, you're not receiving that signal, and and that sucks because, you know, it's for me now that I am where I am. It's just such a major part of my life, and and it's made it's 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 worked wonders for me. It's done so much for me. So I don't, you know. It's, it's, yeah, I mean, people can say, people can say whatever they want, but those of us who are experiencing life in the way that you and I are experiencing it, they know what we're talking about. And now that we're here, I don't think you or I would ever want to, would ever want to live without it, you know?
1: No, and, and I think it says more for Christianity that at our age, we've already been successful people and we decided to go back to God. Mm -hmm. unlike you know maybe an 18 year old kid he got in trouble for the first time went to jail and he found god in jail and that's fine too Mm -hmm. but 18 year old kids are easy to trick uh when you're at the bottom it's easy to ask i didn't go back to god when i was at the bottom i didn't say i didn't pray my way look please save me and i'll come back to you i was already doing good i just had this what you just explained
0: (laughs) yeah no and and that's it man it's i think it I think it takes a certain amount of wisdom to realize and understand that there is something far greater out there and we're nothing without it.
1: And dude, that's what I want to, you know, this could be, you know, maybe out of selfishness, I'm going back to God to get wisdom, but, but God says, seek wisdom in the Bible. He clearly tells Mm -hmm. you that. And we don't talk about wisdom anymore. And bro, with cancel culture and the woke ideology and the wars that are going on and the new world order you know they're adjusting who's going to be boss and we are really in a big big radical change and dude i forgot again what i was saying what was i saying
0: we're 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 experiencing a big radical change um, yeah but with before that with everything that's going on in the world and the the power of god in all of that and the power of god in your in our lives
1: shit i don't remember it just you know had to edit that part out no it's all good but i get i I get it i get excited talking that my head gets (laughs) a gets over flooded and i Start losing my way. No, it's it's <laughs>
0: all good. You know what? You're getting your day started. Uh, my day's wrapping up. I actually got to wrap this up here in a second because I got I got a Filipino wife who's got to be up early and she's going to be pretty pissed if I don't let that happen very soon. Yeah. So, well, listen. Bless her um, heart.
1: Bless her heart.
0: Barry, why don't you tell everybody where they can find you? And you know what? We'll 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 wrap this up. And then when we're done recording, hang around and we'll say our goodbyes privately. But, but for now, tell everybody where they can find you. Sure. The
1: same place I've been for... Almost 20 years, nevergetbusted.com. The same phone number, the same email address. If you ever want to find me, just nevergetbusted.com. Or you can Google my name, Barry Cooper, and it'll point you to my website. If you want to hang out with me, I go live for two to three hours every Tuesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern. And if you want to work with me, just join our NGB 400 activist group. Um, and yeah, and keep your Netflix dial tuned in because that should be airing the first quarter of two thousand and twenty. What what year are we in right now? Twenty twenty three. So
0: 2020, 2024 Yeah, yes,
1: two, yeah, twenty twenty four. I look forward to seeing y'all there.